Heather. Um, thank you, especially Water Horse Coffee and Radic, who is hosting us here tonight. Can we have a round of to our four speakers tonight who'll be talking about um, writing reviews from very different uh, perspectives. Um, this talk and the question and answer session are being recorded by the Oxford Writers' House. Um, thank you very much for doing that. So the Oxford Writers' House is um, a new community uh, founded this summer. It's for um, creative and critical writers. Um, and this talk will be available to download as a podcast afterwards. So um, the Oxford Writers' House is run by April, and um, they're currently recruiting new writers. So if you're interested, then uh, do talk to her after the, the talks. Um, and we welcome live tweeting. Um, <laughs> so you can see up there that there is a Wi-Fi network here <laughs> with a great password. Um, and we're tweeting tonight under the hashtag criticalwriting. So, um, Let's just briefly introduce the Oxford Culture Review, which is what brought you here in the first place tonight. So we, hold, um, we are an online critical writing website, but we also hold termly events and workshops. So what we wanted to do was um, bring together writers and readers and the people we actually review um, to talk uh, together about this reviewing process. Um, so we've brought together this combination of speakers and we've given uh, a few questions in advance to each of them. Um, so what we'd like to do now is to let them speak um, each uh, about their questions for a couple of minutes and then open it up to the floor for question and answers. Um, so our first speaker is Theo Quek. Theo has published three collections of poetry. Uh, most recently, this year, Giving Ground, an excellent collection, I've read it. Um, he's won multiple poetry awards, including the Jane Martin Prize and the New Poets Prize, and he is now one of the editors of Oxford Poetry, as well as the Oxford Culture Review um, uh, features. features editor. And <laughs> <laughs> you. Right. Um, so, some questions that we've uh, asked Theo as a poet uh, are, do you read your own reviews? And do you use them as feedback? Um, and as someone who crosses both sides of the creative and critical writing, um, do you ever feel that there's a tension between um, advocacy and honesty when you're writing a review? Um, cool. Well, hi everyone and thanks so much for coming. Uh, I'll take the first question first because it's, it's first and also because it's harder so I can blag my way through the second one. Um, basically, do I read my own reviews, reviews of my work? Um, yes, I do. And I think it's great. Well, as writers, we produce work so that it can engage, so that it can spark opinions, discussions, sometimes so that it can, it can spark controversy. And when someone else takes the time and the attention to read closely into your work and give you a review, whether that's positive or negative, that's the best compliment a writer can get. Um, saying that a writer has written three books, <laughs> of which one of them is very good, it's great. <laughs> it's great. And that might even fit into the 140 characters of a tweet. But that doesn't actually tell the writer what he needs to know, which is how to engage you even better the next time. Writers write to engage. If we didn't write to engage, we would simply just keep it all in. Um, but reviews help us to engage better and more deeply, as well as more thoughtfully. The second question on whether... Um, what's the second question again? 
Um, when you are both a creative writer and a critical writer. Right, got it. Yeah, okay. So when I'm writing critically, I'm also very much aware that the reviews I'm going to write have a promotional purpose. Um, they will flag up a book that someone may not have noticed before. They may change an opinion about a book. And if I'm lucky, the person might even go and buy it. Now that poetry book sale numbers are dismal, to say the least, um, I'm very much aware that there's an obligation involved in writing the review. So is there a conflict between advocacy and honesty? Um, I'm going to answer that this way. I think between advocacy and honesty, there is the concept of nuance which ties these two things together. A good nuance review allows you to be both honest and to get someone thinking deeply about a book. If there's a book that I... Well, there are a few books that I entirely dislike, <laughs> but there are some books, in fact, all books are imperfect. There will always be something that's a flaw. Um, uh, usually it's stylistic, sometimes it's thematic, sometimes it's ethical. And it's, the burden is on you as a reviewer to point that out in an honest way. But if you do it in a way that's thoughtful enough, then whoever's reading a review hopefully will go and buy it as well. Anyway, um, that's kind of all for me for now. Yeah. Thank you very much. is Dr. Eleni Philippou. Um, she holds a DPhil in English Literature from uh, the University of Oxford. And she's now the coordinator of the Oxford Comparative Criticism and Translation Network. And she teaches a very wide spectrum of theoretical and literary topics at the university. Um, so questions we've asked Eleni are, what makes a good review of an academic book? Um, how much expertise does the reviewer have to have? And is it up to the author to make the, wor uh, the work readable to a wider audience? Okay, um, so I, um, I edit OCCT Review, which is an online journal. Um, we, we review academic texts that deal with comparative criticism and translation studies, and our reviews are usually between 500 and 1,000 words long. And the people that review are usually early career academics or graduate students. And um, I think the first thing to say is that an academic text is quite different from sort of reviewing uh, a literary text or a collection of poetry or um, a film in the sense that um, these aren't texts that are meant for general consumption. They're written for a specialist audience. They're written for academics. Um, so as a reviewer, you would need to have some sort of specialist knowledge in order to access these texts. Um, partly what you're doing is that you're showing um, your research community, your scholarly community, that you have enough legitimacy as, as a researcher, as a scholar, to be able to review and assess and evaluate um, someone else's academic contribution. Um, which means that you yourself need to be very well versed in the topic um, of, of the text, of the academic text that you're, that you're engaging with. Yeah, I mean, if you have any other questions, we can address it in the Q&A, really, yeah. Thank you, Eleni. Um, so our third speaker is James Watt. Um, James is a theatre director based in Cardiff, and he studied English at St. Peter's College here in Oxford. Um, and having trained as an actor and a director, he is now the artistic director of Poor Player Theatre. And the questions we've asked James are, uh, what makes a useful theatre review? Uh, from a director's perspective, and what is the most useful feedback you've had? 
Cool. So I think uh, a good review for theatre or a useful review for theatre, I think, has two main marks to sort of set it apart. First is precision or specificity. I think there are lots of reviews um, which you see across like professional reviewing and for amateur fringe reviewing or student reviewing, where essentially you could excise lines, sentences of reviews, which could then be applied to any other play um, of, of a similar rating. So you think of shows, this is like sort of four-star rating or something like that. You could take half of the review and apply it to a different show. And I think that is a mark of poor reviewing, just because um, I think ultimately a production needs to come out, essentially what, what a director really wants from a review is someone who can pull out the nuances and the subtle decisions. So one of the things that comes out in bad reviews is the performances are rated as convincing or actors inhabit their characters effectively, which really is just a mark of basic competency. If you're not inhabiting a character <laughs> or being at least like on a basic level convincing, you're not acting. That's not a discussion of someone's performance. Someone's rehearsed for four weeks and spent ages in psychological discussion and in various other exercises. And if, if all you've done is convince an audience, that's nothing. What, what really, I think, is the tendency is a fear of description in theatre reviewing, describing what someone's performance is like. So obviously, like, if you're reviewing a production of King Lear, King Lear is going to be vaguely similar in any production. What people want to know and what good reviews point out is the sort of the subtle differences and the nuances of interpretation that the, um, that the actors and the directors have made. The second thing, I think, is something that, for me, sells me a really good review, is when a review is sort of interpretive, when it can tease out what a director or what a production is trying to say in terms of thinking not a theatre as a, sort of a review as a checklist, like is the lighting okay, is the acting okay, does everything flow very well, thinking more about what a piece is doing in its entirety in terms of what questions it's asking, what it's trying to say, what it's doing, something that goes beyond just sort of reviewing as sort of something for a tipster um, in terms of telling audiences what's hot and what's not. I think it goes beyond that. Um, and what's the second question again? Is what, what's the best feedback, the most useful feedback you've ever had? Hmm. I think, for me, I've not had anything that's, de partly because the work I've done has been on fairly short runs, so it's difficult to implement sort of criticism um, in sort of re-rehearsal and changing things for future performances. But for me, the most useful feedback has been something that has um, shown sides of a production that I've not seen. So when uh, we did Hamlet in November in Oxford, and as far as I was concerned, as far as the actor playing Claudius was concerned, we had decided Claudius was an ultimate villain. So you have Frank Underwood, power thirsty, um, entirely sort of um, unguilty un and un um, yeah, entirely sort of happy with his, um, with his ordeal. Everyone in the audience and all the reviewers found that Claudius was an entirely sympathetic character and that he was actually quite a sort of endearing form of Claudius. I mean, the performance was still highly rated, but I'd never seen that. And it's useful sometimes to step out of because you spend so long in discussions and you sort of, you've got your idea of what the character is because you've been working with the actor and it's useful then to sort of go back and help reflect and I think reviews <coughs> allow you to step out of that sort of rehearsal bubble a lot quicker um, and sort of honestly reflect on a show, but yeah. Thank you very much. And our fourth speaker for tonight is Leah Broad. Yeah, Leah is the founder and editor of the Oxford Culture Review. Um, she's doing a DPhil in theatre music um, at Christchurch um, here in Oxford. And she's one of the BBC New Generation thinkers. She also uh, won the Anthony Burgess Prize for Arts Journalism last year. And um, alongside her work for the Oxford Culture Review, she's also written for The Conversation, Huffington Post, and The Observer. Um, the questions that we asked Leah were, um, how do you pick the events we cover for the Oxford Culture Review? Um, what do you think makes constructive criticism? And how do you transfer your academic skills to art journalism? 
Okay, so firstly, hi, thank you all for coming. Um, so for me, I think everything that we've heard so far and also the questions that um, were put to me by our various writers um, are kind of brought together by who are we actually writing for when we write a review? Um, because critics are part of a dialogue in a kind of like whole cultural network, right? And what we're looking for is how we slot into that. Um, so to come to the first question, how we choose what to, re what to review. Um, Oxford has an absolutely enormous cultural scene and obviously we cannot cover everything. Um, so what we try and do, which is kind of related to the advocacy point, is that we focus on new writing. We try and pick um, production. So I'm going to probably refer most to um, theatre because that's like my area. Right? Um, we try and pick things that we think, this looks like a reinterpretation of a very well-known text. Um, what can we bring as a reviewer to this? This isn't you know, another production with big columns and it's Hamlet again the same way. We want something that's maybe trying to do something a little different. And particularly um, in Oxford, it's very exciting that you're dealing with small productions, particularly in theatre, that have maybe only been rehearsed for a few weeks. They are running for three, four, five days, not this very, very slick, all professional productions that you see in London. You require a different type of reviewing for each type of production, I think. And sort of like what James was saying, um, you can have like kind of impact. This is a point where critics can actually sort of make a difference because you're working in a very close dialogue. People are going to be reading these um, reviews and you can actually have some kind of impact with what you're saying. Um, and the reason that we uh, try to pick new writers is because it's very interesting to kind of see the new the people who are writing now. These are the people who people are going to be reviewing on the London stages in the next few years. And so it's interesting to this is the part where you can kind of get a very quick feedback cycle. And we're kind of hoping to tap into that. Um, and then so for the second question, how, how do you write constructive criticism? So <laughs> this, is, this is the big one, which is that, you know, you've been to see a production and you thought, my goodness, what on earth is positive, positive than I can possibly say about this? And the thing is, is like negative criticism is really fun to write, hilarious to read, awful to be on the receiving end of. And it's really negative. You know, you've put in a lot of work and I think every critic should have to be on the receiving end of a bad review. Um, because I think we'd have a much more positive reviewing sphere if they did. <laughs> um, and I think that's quite important because also I hated it. This tells you nothing, right? This doesn't say why you hated it. So I think what makes constructive criticism is saying, uh, also what I say a lot to my, when I'm teaching <laughs> is you've made an observation, now back it up with why. And I think this is where academic skills come in a lot because a good review is sort of like writing a good academic essay. It's taking a line, it's taking an interpretation and it's choosing what you put in and what you take out, what you leave out. Um, and also if, you say, if you're making an argument, why you feel that and that's important. So exactly the specificity point that James made, which is that, you know, I thought this was bad. No, no, I thought this bit of the act was bad because the lighting didn't match up and like all the props fell down or whatever it was, right? But having some reason that then the actors can go away and go, oh, okay, this didn't come across how we thought it did. Or writers can say this line isn't quite, you know, how I thought it would come across. And that can actually be very constructive and be part of this dialogue that Theo was talking about rather than just being... Un unpleasant and horrible and nobody wants that right we're all in this because we enjoy it and nobody wants to just be on the end of a very unpleasant review um, 
And so then finally, bringing academic skills to arts journalism, for me, the most interesting pieces of reviewing are often a kind of middle ground between an opinion piece and a research piece. Um, and I think that academics are really well placed to give exactly the kind of nuance that we've been talking about. You do have a broad body of knowledge often about a particular topic and we try and match up reviewers with um, events, books, exhibitions that they have some level of in-depth knowledge about because then you can get where this nuance is coming from and you will probably maybe even know more interpretations than the director does, right? And you'll come to a play going, well, you know, I can see the influences you're picking up on here. This didn't quite work, but what I would really have loved to see is this, or have you thought about this, or what more could you add? Um, and so long as this doesn't go into like, you know, unnecessary name dropping, where you can kind of go, well, I've read every single one of David Foster Wallace's books, here are all the references. Well, that's fine, you know, you need to know why you're making those references. But I do think that with the amount of knowledge that they have and, you know, the amount of writing that people are doing, we're really lucky to be in a city with so, you know, we've got academics coming out of our ears with two huge universities. That's a lot of knowledge that we can bring to arts and culture journalism. And also on a website, we have the space to go into the detail that broadsheets don't. You know, when you're writing for the Garden, you've got a deadline, you've got 500 words in, out done, if that, you know. Um, and here we can, online, you can have a bigger... Uh, scope to actually get into the details and start becoming part of that dialogue. So I think that's what I have to say on that. Thank you very much. So that's our four speakers. I will now open it up to questions from the audience. <coughs> um, let me start with a question. Um, so on the one hand, you mentioned um, looking for uh, new writers, new work in Oxford, local, but that also means that, for instance, the writer that someone in the Oxford Culture Review reviewed might be sitting on a stool here. Well, no, it wasn't the Oxford Culture <laughs> Review who reviewed it, but reviewer and reviewee <coughs> might know each other quite well. So is there a sort of... Um, so does it get too personal in that sense? And the same for academic reviews, um, Eleni. Um, when you're writing an academic review, it's, uh, you're usually writing about your own topic, so it's quite niche, so you might have met the author at conferences. How do you then um, negotiate that personal aspect? So our rule on this is if you know people uh, who wrote the book, who are the artist or the director, you do not sign up to do the review. Because I think this is a real problem that we do. Uh, we, you know, Oxford is quite small, um, and this will be, you know, throughout as you go on, continue reviewing, um, you will start to get to know people, and it just becomes very difficult not to write either a like, basically a sort of celebratory piece of your mates. <laughs> so that's our line on it. If you have a friend in it, don't review it. Um, you don't really get that luxury in academic reviews because sometimes your subject area is so small that you're going to write a book on someone you're going to meet at some point. And uh, it's not just someone that you might meet at a conference, it might be someone who's potentially interviewing you for a job at some point. Uh, which means that you need to be very diplomatic in writing your review, you need to be very sensitive and you need to also just review, so be professional in your tone and frame your comments in a way that 
you know, that sort of suggests that you're evaluating the text on its own terms, not in terms of the way that you would have written the book if you had written it. Um, so yeah, I mean, just being very diplomatic and careful about the tone that you use, these sorts of things, being professional rather than just sort of going in there trying to make a name for yourself and thinking that this is a way to, you know, to sort of insert yourself into scholarly conversations in quite a big way, but then mm -hmm. it might have like very real repercussions in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Um, I agree with what Eleni said. I think it also touches on what I tried to mention earlier. A, a good negative review is the best compliment. Um, I've written bad, I mean, negative reviews of people whom I know very well. Um, I have written it in such a way that respects their, respects the choices that they made, but also tells them why that might not work for an audience in my position. Um, I think one of the biggest <coughs> issues in reviewing something like poetry, for example, that to many of the authors is very, very personal, is that authors take a very deep stake in very, very particular choices. And for them, their entire artistic reputation, outlook, etc., is staked on precisely those choices that you're criticizing. But what you can do as someone who knows the author well, respects the author, and wants to preserve that relationship, is to tell him how his particular choice, that view of himself, might not have carried across in these lines or these words, um, in the way that he expected. And I think all writers would be the first to acknowledge that we have our blind spots. Um, and sometimes it's gentler when someone who we know points it out. <laughs> April, I had a question about genre, because obviously the four of you come from different backgrounds, you're writing something of the same form, but not really. And I wondered, some of you touched on this almost a bit um, in a fringe way, but I wondered if you had ever had, or maybe you could tell stories of moments where you had questions about genre and perhaps pushing boundaries or writing the review in a style that was outside of the norm for your given form and what that was like. I don't know. So is this a question about uh, the genre of something we're reviewing or changing the genre of review? It's the second question. The second question. Okay. Does anyone want to jump on that one? Maybe another way of framing it is, do you feel obliged to write along the conventional lines of what you think you're doing? Uh, why or why not? Maybe that's better. Um. Content or format? <laughs> I'm getting to the nuance of the visit. Um, Theo, what were you going to... So I was going to say, um, a well-written review is a creative response to a work of art. Um, there is no reason why a reviewer is any less of an artist than a person who created the first piece. And um, the idea of a first piece anyway is a misleading one because all artists respond to other artists. So in a way, every piece of art is a review and every review is a piece of art. That said, there, we have evolved within the idea of art journalism a particular mode that seems to work fairly well given our current social moment. So you would not see a website like the Oxford Culture Review 50 years ago, because A, websites didn't exist, and B, <laughs> nobody would have read it, probably. Um, you know, they would have gone to, say, Private Eye or something and gotten their dose of cultural journalism there. Um, but I think we, because the, the mode of the review, as we currently have it, in Alanis' case, 500 to 1,000 words, in our case, usually about 800, um, that is, is something that has evolved to fit the needs of our cultural sphere. So sometimes it is effective to operate in that. Other times, um, we write essays, poems, jokes in response to other people's art, and these are also kinds of reviews. 
think, might not get published. But. Yeah, so there's also a thing here between like house style and personal style. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of, because we have so many writers, um, we try and sort of like keep a general format to allow writers to be expressive within that. Um, and so I'm, you know, there are writers who have written brilliant, brilliant reviews, not in, you know, nothing close to what the editors would have written. Their terms of phrase are entirely different, and we try and accommodate that as much as possible because it's really nice to see how people use a standard format really creatively. Um, uh, in other publications, I've seen some fantastic... Somebody did... Oh, man, I, this stuck with me, this review. <laughs> it was a review of David Foster Wallace, and it was written in the style of David Foster Wallace. And it was a broadly ambivalent review, but it was so cutting because it was written in his style and it was very, very clever. Um, so if anybody wants to send in something like that, we're very open to it. Um, but yeah, I think we try and keep a balance um, and allow writers to try and like innovate within a particular form. I think with academic reviews, though, you can't be going down that route. <laughs> you're, trying, you're trying to prove that you're a scholar. So you're not going to do something which is very avant-garde. I mean, obviously, stylistically, you can write well, and you, you, know, you can sort of communicate in an effective way, but you have to do it within this very clear academic ambit. And um, so you wouldn't want to be sort of replicating David Foster Wallace's voice. Uh, <laughs> In writing your review, you want to sort of show that you have legitimacy as a scholar, you have authority as a scholar, so you're sticking to the conventions as much as you possibly can. And as the literature editor, only when you're writing in the style of David Foster Wallace, that will be the only time I'll ever allow footnotes. <laughs> will, you had a question? Yes. Um, I was wondering what you think of the sort of practice of putting stars or scores on reviews. Because I noticed they're very prevalent in theatre, but not so much in literary, something like in academic criticism. So, how do you respond to that? Is that useful? Is what's your opinion? I think they're an appallingly unnuanced way of giving criticism. <laughs> um, just because, I mean, like. It's very difficult to categorise, and there are shows that you give four stars, you can give a whole like, range of different shows four stars, it doesn't really say anything about the production. It also implies some sort of like, objective um, sort of, like, measure of quality in a show. Um, and the bottom line is that like, ultimately a reviewer gives their own opinion, but also manages to communicate some sort of idea of what the show is like so that the reader can um, sort of assume from that what, what they think of it. Um, I think a star rating is quite unhelpful. And also just, it results in a sort of shorthand for reviews where people don't actually read reviews, they just look at the star ratings. Because you can have a show that, say, would get a two or three stars but be praised for massive ambition or experiment. Um, whilst being unsuccessful, I think ambition and experiment should be rewarded, but those things sort of get lost when you sort of just look at star ratings. Uh, don't anyone else? Precisely with you on this one. Um, so we've had people ask to give star ratings so they can put them on posters. Um, <laughs> but as a general rule, for precisely the reasons James just said, we don't give star ratings because what we're looking at is like the review as a whole and people's work as a whole. And it's kind of like, well, maybe your introduction was zero stars, but actually your conclusion was like off the chart. It was so good. And then your book progressed. So do, we, how do I rate this? Um, so I would much rather try and convey that in the review because um, I think you know star ratings and no star ratings are appropriate for different spaces and our spaces when we're we're trying to do the kind of like longer review. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to people who maybe haven't written uh, uh, critically before or are just getting into it? 
Okay, well, I'll chip in first. Um, send us a piece <laughs> and we will ed work with you on it, basically. If people are keen on getting into writing, I think the best thing to do is practice, 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 practice. Um, and you will get better. Um, and do send it to edited sites because getting an editor's feedback um, is incredibly useful and is what helps you improve, right? Um, and other than that, just like read widely and really get into what you enjoy would be my advice. <laughs> also, read other people's reviews. Um, so go to a show. It's often hard to formulate an opinion on a show right afterwards, but if a review comes up, then you can look at that and say, what do I agree with this person's viewpoint? Uh, what has he missed that I saw, that, that brilliant you know, mic drop moment that he didn't say anything about in a review? Um, and then that's how you not only um, see what some of the conventions are, but that's how you grow your own viewpoint and grow your own distinctive take on, on a show or a book or etc. Usually with books it's easier because you know, they kind of hang around, it's not just a three night run. If a book had a three-night run, it would be an incredibly sad book. <laughs> so the book is hanging around, and you can kind of compare that to the reviews that come out about it. Um, so in, in the field that I do, which is you know, literary um, journalism, that's easier. Um, but yeah, read other people's writing. I think also for like event reviews, if you can read somebody who you're interested in reading their review, even though you know the play is going on in the other side of the world, and you're never going to see it, but there's still something you can take away from that review about maybe the text or the performance, that is a really good review. So, I mean, this is something that I think about a lot, which is that, you know, when you're reviewing a very specific event, but we have an international readership, so we are writing for a number of different people, right? And there are going to be people who aren't going to see the production of, you know, whatever play that we're reviewing. So it's, if you can find reviewers who can still make you think about an event that you've not seen, that's a brilliant review. On that as well, I mean, it falls on what I want in terms of description as well, because especially with plays, they're so ephemeral. Most recordings are not, most plays in Oxford are not recorded. Um, so the reviews are really the only solid record that these shows have. Um, and I think there's an important sort of obligation then on reviewers to be able to sort of capture some sort of sense of those shows. That's how their longevity exists, otherwise they're gone. On a purely um, flippant <laughs> point, as a theatre historian, I love descriptive reviewers, because they're literally all you've got to go on. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so I guess especially for the but maybe for the rest of you, um, does doing critical writing of the medium that you also do as an artist improve your art or affect it or...? Um, yeah, it does. Actually, so I can give you a real-life example of this. Um, so, um, practicing what I preached just this afternoon, I was writing a review, um, and it was a book. So, um, some of you have read some of my poems, a lot of the poems I've been writing over the past year, uh, kind of dabble in the nature writing tradition because I've also been reading a lot of books about nature writing and I think nature's great, right? In general. Well, while it's still like this, we could, you know. Um, so I was, so I was uh, reading a book this afternoon that was nature poetry. Um, and as I was kind of training my attention on the book as a reviewer, I could see that this person, uh, I will not say who the, the poet is, had gone so far into this nature writing tradition that they were not able to assess it critically. Um, so, for example, there was no ethical engagement in any of the poems with a sense of the, the very white male um, upper-class history of nature writing. 
Um, and then I thought about my own poems that were about nature and was like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> Have I done that? So, so it's always useful, especially when you see issues in other people's work. Um, and always keep that critical eye at the same time pointed to your own work. Uh, that said, there's always a temptation to go, aha, I wrote a poem about this thing too and mine was better. Um, <laughs> but, but that's not really the point of reviewing because, uh, well, a good review takes that, as Eleni said earlier, um, takes that <laughs> work that has been created, whether it's academic or literary or theatrical, etc., on its own merits, on its own basis, um, and assesses it from where it comes from rather than from where you come from. So, yeah. But, um, yeah. So I would add the same, because we do review academic books as well, um, but from a non-peer review perspective. Um, and so, you know, often it'll be an undergraduate reviewing a 50, 60-year-old tenured professor's text um, for a readership that the book almost isn't intended for. Um, but what I found most interesting is that the publishers really love having the general feedback because increasingly there's a sense in which particularly books like the history of Oxford University came out, Oxford University Press. They're an academic publisher, but it's a, for a general readership. And um, it's written by a professor of history. And it's written by a history professor. Um, and I think these sort of academic texts that are slightly crossover, that we do review a lot, um, I think that the uh, you know, feedback on style, which is a very different type of feedback than you're getting in an academic peer review, um, are two very different types of feedback, right? And so you've got two different forums for that. So, sorry, let me just cut in, but most, <coughs> most reviews aren't actually peer reviewed. They might feature in peer reviewed journal articles, yeah. but they aren't peer reviewed. Um, in addition to that, publishers are usually quite enthusiastic about academic reviews because a lot of libraries, academic libraries, won't buy books unless there's been a review on them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, it's really good marketing and publicity. So they can use these reviews on their websites, you know, in, in various like literary journals, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so for instance, uh, with the Oxford Culture Review, I've seen, you know how they always take a line or two snippets out of a review, which are really positive, <laughs> sort of the most positive set of words they could find, and then stick it on their website. So you, with the Oxford Culture Review, with academic books, I've seen really interesting mixes of academic journal, academic journal, Oxford Culture Review, newspaper, they like to show that a wide readership enjoys this book. Yeah. And um, also what you also get when you have undergraduates reviewing academic work is this will be on undergraduate reading lists. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, again, the same thing, you have different formats and different uh, types of reviews for different spaces. Um, so we offer the kind of more... Uh, I guess the popular reader because often they won't have the same, same level of expertise as people who <coughs> OCCT. A um, uh, question for Leah. Um, to what extent is um, knowledge of performance history of, say, a classic play useful to a theatrical review or can it sometimes be a hindrance? Uh, both. Um, so it entirely depends on the playing question and like there are uh, plays I've reviewed where the director is clearly bouncing off a particular interpretation and then it's useful to know that context, uh, performance context but I think it can be quite useful to know a performance context just to go they didn't reference anything this is entirely new this is very exciting I've not seen this before having said that you know there are definitely 
plays which I find a little difficult to review because I have a kind of seminal image right in my head of something and it can be very hard to distance yourself from that. So I think it can be a help and a hindrance and I try to go into every play going, what is this director doing? If it is then relevant to mention performance context, I will do so. But what I hope to do is try and get at exactly what is going on in this specific production. What did I think of it and why? And if why, what I thought of something happens to be because of previous stuff I've seen, then I will mention it. James, do you have anything to add to...? I mean, I think as a director, it's definitely... Uh, definitely, I find it useful when a reviewer clearly has a knowledge of the production history, because generally, if I'm directing something, I'll be re doing a lot of research, and I will sort of look through the last sort of 100 years of performance if it's like a classic, like Shakespeare or something, um, because you don't want to be doing something that's been done 50 years ago and you didn't realise, you don't want your interpretation to be even accidentally derivative, so you're trying to find, <laughs> and often with something like Shakespeare, it's a case of going through history and then slowly realising that all your ideas have been taken <laughs> by productions on, like, throughout the ages. But it definitely, it's in, I mean, it's, it's always encouraging for a director to be compared to other performances, see what you, um, even if there are influences that are not actually theirs, and if you're not actually being influenced by it, but you happen to have struck upon something which was done in a production 50 years ago, so it's useful to work out where you fit into a sort of a line of interpretation um, with, with, with a play, with a text. Uh, are there any reviewers that you sort of regularly follow, and uh, are there any reviewers that you try and emulate to make Leah, do you have any? Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> there are definitely reviews I read um, and reviewers I read regularly. Um, I admit to being quite heavily wedded to the Guardian theatre day. <laughs> um, but I try and not only read one reviewer because I think it's, you know, that's their opinion and I don't want to only have one person's opinion on something. So what I tend to try and do is find, uh, I will look up multiple reviews of the same thing. Um, and particularly if I'm looking for something to go to, uh, I find that, you know, even if you think your taste is very similar to a particular reviewer, it's not entirely reliable that I can absolutely go to all of Michael Billington's shows that are five star and love them all, right? I'm looking for something a bit different. I'm looking for... Am I going to enjoy this? And so I try and not limit myself to exclusively one reviewer. But obviously, you know, there are so many good reviewers. It's sort of hard to pick one that I would say I'd try and emulate. Anyone else? Yeah. Do you have a question? Well, there, there are... I, okay, well, as a general trend, I tend to be more likely to read and also like reviews by fellow poets of other poets' work. Um, that said, I was very sad recently when one of the poets whom I respect quite a lot said that he has decided never to do a review ever again because it doesn't pay, it's depressing, <laughs> and your friends hate you. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that's... Generally, I try to follow fellow poets' reviews, partly because I also want to see where their work goes next after they have read this person's work and thought that of it. Um, so, yeah, it's quite an interesting ecosystem. Maybe it only works in poetry because there's so few of us. <laughs> um, I think we have time for one final question. Uh, 
Um, but if not, then let's uh, thank our four speakers for an excellent panel tonight. And you're going to be able to ask them individually questions and have some more tea and coffee. <laughs> thank you very much.